Homo sapiens, welcome to another exciting episode of Polytrex. With this episode, we are continuing our engaging with Star Trek Picard series by doing a review slash breakdown slash fanboying over the goodness that was episode six, The Impossible Box. Now, before we get into the episode, we are proud to tell you that we are part of the Trek Geeks Network. Barry DeFord, my co-host, and I run this year weird wonderful ship called Polytrex in which we discuss politics and culture and society in Star Trek and the real world and we try to merge them together. Much like Soji's dream that she keeps waking up from and then has to go back and connect the pieces. It's kind of what we try to do here with the real world and Star Trek. And we are so, so fortunate that we're part of the Trek Geeks Network. We have a home from Bill and Dan, our delightful co-founders, who have skipped an episode this week, I would like you to know. So it's up to us to keep up the quality of the network, and we are more than up for that challenge. Uh, I say we, because today my co-host Barry DeFord will not be joining me. He is, as we speak, recording Picard Live, which is a new format to do a review slash analysis show on the TrekX network. It is called Picard Live, and you can find it on the YouTubes and Facebooks and other streaming platforms. They also do an audio-only version that drops the day after it airs, and it usually airs Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, I believe. So he's recording it right now, which is crazy. But I'm here, and I have a wonderful special guest that I'll introduce here in a minute, and I am very, very excited. This guest and I have a magical, special connection, and I am so, so happy that he could join me for this episode. But before we go any further, I also would like you to know that we are sponsored by Fansets. Fansets.com is a wonderful place to get all your pin merch needs. They have Star Trek, they have DC Comics, they have Harry Potter, they have Alien. They now have the Big Bang Theory, you guys. You can get a Raj pin. That's what I'm waiting to get, a Raj pin. Uh, And later in the show, I will give you a discount code that is exclusive to the Polytrek show. And if you use this discount code at the checkout, you will get 15% off. Fansets are pins have character. All right. Well, before we get into the show, I just want you guys to know a couple of things. If you would like to tell us how you felt about this show and about the episode, or just tell us how your day is going, you could do that by following us and tweeting at us on at Polytrex. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. And we would love to hear from you. Please keep it positive. You don't have to keep it positive. If you don't like something, we appreciate it. Keep it respectful. Keep it civil. That is what we appreciate a lot more, for sure. And we will respond. And we will talk to you. We will share your opinions. We will respond to them. We are, you know, above all, Polytrex to me personally is a place, just a jumping off point so we could have a much deeper more enjoyable discussion about this franchise that we all love so much. Just keep it civil, keep it respectful. That's what all I ask. We also have a Facebook page called Polytrex, but that is not as active. Twitter is really where it's at. So make sure you follow us and tweet at us on at Polytrex. And hey, if you're enjoying the show, leave us an iTunes review, you guys. We would love a review on iTunes from you. Hopefully it's a good review, but we won't be mad if it's a bad review. We will take it. We are big boys. And just one more thing before we get in. It's a breakdown slash analysis slash fanboying show of an episode of a TV show. So yeah, spoilers galore. It's If there was a spoiler alert that I could make in the sound of the Star Trek 
alarms, I would make it. But I have, my editing skills are not there yet. Hopefully, I'll get there someday. But right now, I can just say spoiler alert. And make sure you know that before you jump into the episode. Anyway, on to the main section, engaging with Star Trek Picard, The Impossible Box. All right, now we are in our main section. This is our main topic for the day. Nothing else but the impossible box, which I have so many thoughts on. I'm very, very excited to talk to you about this episode. And here, because I cannot contain all the excitement, and as I walk through the Jalmak, I need someone guiding me in there and snapping and telling me what to do, where to stop, where not to stop, where to head so we can get to the truth. I have a very, very special guest joining me on this episode. It's my, you know, there are very few people on the planet who don't need an introduction, especially in the Star Trek community, but I'll try to give him one anyway. He is the host, the genius host of Trek Profiles. He and I were part of the TOS crew of (laughs) Weekly Trek, which we did for a hot minute at the Tricorder Network, which I have so much fun every time I talk to him. John Krikorian, how are you, my friend? Greetings, my people. I hope you are all living long and prospering out there. John, was that a good enough introduction for your excellency? That was preposterous and redonkulous. Uh, I am no celebrity. I am no one in particular, Um, but uh, I'm just a a simple guy just making his little podcast out here. So uh, we're, we're all on the level here in the Star Trek community. So I am just one voice among many, and uh, I just love doing my little show, and I'm just one little part of it. But uh, I'm happy to be here with you, my friend. Hey, for people who do not know, what is Trek Profiles, John? Oh, Trek Profiles is a fan interview show. So every episode, I sit down with one particular Star Trek fan, and we lay their fandom out on the table. We dissect it and figure out how and why it works, like Galileo back in the day. And then we uh, we celebrate why they love it so much. And uh, it's a single interview is each episode and you can start anywhere listen to any one of them you can listen to one all of them in any order you want and uh, it's available where finer podcasts are to be had awesome i highly recommend trek profiles i especially recommend the episode that i was in (laughs) (laughs) that's my there's my selfish plug for today Thanks for listening to this, what will definitely be over an hour long episode of Polytrex. Now, let me direct you to another episode on another show in which I talk for an hour about Star Trek. Just way to go. You're, you're a real super fan if you actually follow through on this. But if you don't listen to my episode, there are delightful, delightful episodes that you can, you can listen to. They're fans from every corner. They're diverse and they have really unique stories to share about Star Trek. Make sure to check out Trek Profiles. Thank you, Shashank. I really appreciate that plug. It was very kind of you. Oh, it was my pleasure, sir. I am really, really happy to be talking to you today. Uh, this is your first time on Polytrex? Yes, and I feel rather bad about it, uh, only because Barry had been asking me for so long to be on the show, and I said, yeah, and we had some ideas on things we could talk about, and, and we'd sort of, you know, send some messages back and forth, and then Barry can't be here, so I'm filling in, and Barry is not here, and I am, and I feel kind of bad. So I'm sending positive thoughts and vibes to, to Barry at Time Now, saying, you finally got me on the show, and you're not here, bro, and I miss you. So there you go. 
I, for one, I'm very happy that after all that discussion, I was the one who got you on here for the first time. <laughs> no worries, man. But I'm, I'm excited to get to it. I am too. In my ever-growing attempt to add some semblance of structure to this La Serena-style ship that has no rules, I will, att- I will ask you three important questions, sir. Sure. You're, you're the one usually asking questions to people on your show. Let me flip it. How are you enjoying Star Trek Picard so far? I am loving it. Uh, and I am loving it because I think it has a, a level of humanity to it that I think is really touching. Um, it, it really is about a human story about, about the JLP character and seeing that he's actually had some changes in his life. And they're changes that I think are very identifiable to people in the here and now. Uh, and so I appreciate that. I appreciate the incredible reality of it in that it just feels so different from a lot of the other 90s track and 60s track that we've seen, you know, where they were on sets a lot. And it just looks so real. Uh, and, and I'm just enjoying that so much. And the characters just seem like more like regular people to me. And so I find that very accessible as well. It's, uh, it's something that I'm really enjoying about the show. And, uh, and, and this isn't, you know, I, I think I have to compare it in my head to, to our other modern live action track show that we've seen so far, which is discovery, which is more of a bullet in how it's designed as far as the pacing. And there's sort of this breakneck speed to everything. And you can barely catch your breath before some other crazy thing happens. And, you know, that's, that's, I'm less interested in that, right? Not a criticism of the show. It's, you know, that that's some people like it. That's great. This is more deliberate for me. And, and while some people have criticized Picard as a little bit slow, I I'm enjoying it and I'm savoring it. And while there's some stuff I like, some stuff I don't. So everything's always a mixed bag to some degree or another, but I am enjoying Picard immensely and I eagerly await each new episode. That is wonderful to hear. I am glad you like the show. I'm sorry you don't, don't like discovery as much. I love both of them equally, just like my, both my eyes. I like both of these shows equally or just like both my Star Trek Picard first contact spacesuit Picard edition figures, I like them both equally. I just have one as a mint in box, which I'll never open, and the other that I've opened and played with, so he hangs out on my shelf. Just, oh, but okay. I love them both equally. Yeah, I mean, I like, I like Discovery too. It's just that the, the pacing to me is just a little too frenetic, and so I, it, it's, not, it's less for me than, than this. I enjoy more of a slower pace, so it's, sure. a, it's a personal preference thing. On to the next question, sir. How did you like The Impossible Box? Well, I'll tell you, it was a little bit of a roller coaster, my friend. Uh, there were some parts of it that I thought were just amazing and delightful, and some parts of it that I really struggled with. I think we'll get more into that as we go through the uh, the scene by scene, but uh, there were... I, I think I've turned around though on some of it because I've come up with a little bit of head cannon, quote unquote, that that sort of uh, ameliorates some of the bigger problems that I had with a couple of scenes. But man, there was so much good stuff uh, in here as well. So uh, a lot of stuff to talk about. I will tell you, the Impossible Box is my new favorite episode. Okay. So that is the kind of uh, excitement I felt when I watched this episode. It was the pilot before, and. I enjoyed all the other episodes to varying degrees, which you can listen to on our previous episodes of Polytrex. And this is an episode that really, to me, it, 
it felt like the most we've talked you know how big a fan i am of this show but it felt like the most battlestar galactica episode i will share those thoughts with you too but and anytime anybody connects anything to battlestar galactica in a good way my heart just just bursts with love and excitement so my final question before we get into the scene by scene where would you yeah. rank the impossible box in 1 to 6 so far oh i would probably put it in the definitely top half i'm not much of a rank guy uh, but i would definitely put it in the top half for sure um and i would probably put it in the top 2 um it it's always hard for me because whenever i I get these rank these episode questions. Uh, It's always hard for me to take the episodes on their own terms because I always put myself back into the the headspace that I was at uh, when I watched it. And I think there was just something really glorious about that first episode because I was at a watch party surrounded by other Trekkies mm-hmm. and, and to watch it together and to be in the room with such wonderful people uh, watching the episode for the first time, it had an experience for me, which was so delightful that it sort of colors my opinion of the episode. So I can't even judge it as an episode because of the setting that I was in. So they're kind of intertwined for me like that. So um, it, it makes it hard for me to, to rank it. But I would say I would definitely put it in the in the top two of, of, of all the episodes we've seen so far. Unlike you, my watch, watch party consisted of me drinking Romulan ale and smoking snake leaf while holding my dog and crying. So that was how my watch party went for the first episode. <laughs> More in the continuing tragedy of Shashank's life. Hey, is that is that somewhere on Patreon? If if they pay enough, <laughs> is is there is your video of that event? <laughs> oh, oh, there's no money. There is not enough money in the world to record that kind of tragedy, my friend. Hey, okay, so let's get into the episode, sir. Yes, uh, we have laid down the groundwork for how we kind of feel generally, but one, ju- I'm just saying it one more time because. I don't know why, but people kind of get mad, even though I've said it once already, there will be spoilers from here on out. So make sure you've seen the episode, The Impossible Box, and then come back and listen to the rest of this episode. So we start the episode again with uh, previously on Star Trek Picard. I believe this time the person who said previously on Star Trek Picard was Harry Treadaway, the, ca- the actor who plays Narek. So after that, previously, we get to a flashback, and this time we see a young Soji. And we see her walking down a hallway. She's maybe 10, 11 years old. And she's walking down a hallway. She opens the door into what looks like a lab. And we see her behind rows of orchids, which is a continuing theme in this episode. She sees a kind of a turn that leads off to a direction. And in the shadows, or really in the background, is who we find out later is her father working. And as she turns to that direction, curious about what is on the other side of that room, her father yells Soji, and then she turns around and she wakes up. What did you think of the scene? There were there are a few little interesting nuggets that I picked up. It was a very cool scene, kind of almost like a horror movie setup, especially the beginning of it for me. Oh, I thought it was just a, a great scene. And boy, props on the casting for finding a, a young girl who looked so much like uh, Issa Briones. Is that how you say her name, Issa? Yes. Issa Briones. Um, she, the, the resemblance was really, really good. And, you know, it was filmed in a way that was very reminiscent of sort of the dream sequences that you traditionally get, you know, which is fine. Uh, the thing that really jumped out at me, though, and I put something about this out on Twitter and people were, were letting me know what they thought, which was, we keep seeing these orchids, right? And she's made references to orchids that her dad named an orchid after her. We see the orchids in the lab. And the one thing, this is really what I was thinking of as I watched the scene was, you know, orchids are, there's a whole group of people out there that do orchids and splice them together. That's like a whole thing that actually happens in the Mm -hmm. world. And I keep wondering if that's a, a little 
marker about something that, that they're trying to teach us about this character. And so I was speculating at the time, and this is speculation, I don't know anything, but just speculating that perhaps these, the Dodge and, and Soji uh, androids are like a fusion of like Sung and Borg tech in some way, right? Sort of a splicing together of these two completely different technologies to create something new that Maddox had figured out. And I don't know, it was just a thought that I had, but I, I'm, I feel, even if I'm wrong on that, I feel like those orchids have a symbolism that's going to come back at some point. And I haven't quite figured it out yet, but if I had to bet on something, that's where I'd put it there. I'm not feeling that strongly yet, but I, that particular uh, interpretation, but I do feel strongly that those orchids do have some symbolism, even if we haven't figured it out yet. I believe if I remember correctly, we also see these orchids in her room or a type of an orchid in her room in one of the earlier episodes almost in the background. Uh, we'll talk more about the things we see in her room and other rooms, but apologize for the pun, but I feel like they're sowing the seeds to, make that, that, to make that a huge, big Ouch. revelation that we'll find out. Oh, stop it. That oh, we'll find me, out about. Gives me a pain right here. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's my dad pun for the day, <laughs> even though I'm, I'm a dog dad. So take that. Hey, so then we go to Soji and Narek, the current grown-up Soji and Narek in bed, and she wakes up, and then she says, oh, this is kind of a dream. I just had a bad dream. And then Narek starts talking to her and they do this. They continue their flirtation as they keep revealing things to each other through discussions. And at one point she says something to the effect of, uh, he asked her, oh, what secrets are you holding from me? I need to know every little thing from you. And she says, well, what are you holding from me? I don't even know your real name. It was a, it was an interesting scene before it cuts it. It ends with Narek walking away. Well, a couple of things. One is I wasn't sure how intentional this was, but I, I sort of chose to take it as a, uh, a sort of a visual pun that the way that the scene begins is they're in bed and then they pull the covers over themselves and they're undercover and Narek is undercover. Oh, so I man. thought, uh, was that intentional? Like, are that they- is worse than my sowing the seeds pun. No, I, my question is, were they being intentional about it, mm. right? Was it sort of like a little visual pun for the audience, right? And I was like, I wonder if they were doing that intentionally or not, or if this is just me making stuff up. Because if you watch it very carefully, you'll see that the camera is undercover with them. Because if you look at the top of the frame, you'll see the, the cover is on top of the, is on top of the frame. So you, the camera is under the covers with them at one point. And I just thought they might be just having a bit of fun with us. I don't know. Uh, but I did enjoy that, nevertheless. Um, I thought it was a great little scene, though. Um, the, the, the one thing I'm a little curious about is that, okay, so Soji gets in a relationship with Narek. And, well, at the beginning, we didn't know if it was just a hookup or a relationship, right, in the first time they get together. Yeah. But then we see that she's, she's with him. He's obviously staying over. So they're having a relationship of some kind. But – what his job is and sort of what he's doing on the artifact is never really explained to her, like in universe to her, or, or have I missed it? Because I just find it strange that she just accepts that he just like walks around the artifact and has all these clearances and she doesn't know anything, but yet she continues to have this ongoing relationship with him. I find it very interesting that, that she doesn't, not, I'm going to say interrogate, but I, I don't mean in a, in a sort of spy way, but just say, look, you know, I mean, we're going to be together. Don't I have to know like what you actually do around here? 
and and I, I don't think they actually had that conversation. Or did I? The only part I remember is when he said to, it was when she said to him, "If uh, you were Tal Shiar, would you tell me?" And and then he changed the subject, and that was that was it. But I, I, I find that very interesting. But I will say that the part that made me jump out of my chair on a rewatch. Uh, to change the subject here uh, very quickly, was when uh, she looks over at the photo of her and her mom, and right next to it is the wooden doll sitting oh, yeah. on the nightstand. I just, I love that so much because that comes back later in the same episode, of course, yes. which is beautiful. There's also a hand that we talk about right next to it. Mm. Uh, but so, is he really undercover? Because he's not the only person that he would really be undercover with, and uh, not in the bedroom, but metaphorically would be with Soji, and she clearly doesn't know what he's up to. So is he actually undercover or is he just deliberately not revealing anything and she's fine with the mystery of it? Yeah, it could be. It could be. It's just, I don't think we we really have any information to answer the question. And I just find it interesting. And it's something that I'm pondering, like why, if you were on your, let's say just, you know, forget a sexual relationship. If you're even on your third date with someone, you would already know some things about them, like basic things. And, and while we all understand that Romulans have their own point of view about secrecy and privacy and all that, uh, it just seems interesting to me that she's willing to let it go. And I'm wondering how much of that is due to her sort of robot nature. Is it part of her programming or is she just willing to accept him as he is? And I, I think any of those could be the case, but I think it's just interesting to find out sort of which one it is and to sort of ponder that for a moment. So I'm not sure. Look, John, I'm not an authority on women. Oh, no, I'm not either. And I'm married to one. And she'll tell you, I'm, I'm hopeless. So there you so, go. Clearly, I have no earthly idea why. But hey, here's the thing. I know she's young. I, I can understand age. She's only 37 months old, man. Yeah, well, that we find, she finds <laughs> that out later. But Isa Briones is only 20 years old. And I believe the character is supposed to be 19. Because if she's about to head out to their version of college, she would be maybe 17, 16-ish, or I, I don't know. It's probably... Well, hold on, because, wait, later on in the same episode, Hugh refers to her as doctor. So she would already have a PhD at this point, wouldn't she? That would be, yes, that is correct. But that would be Soji. If you remember, Daj was oh, right, 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 to go to right, right. Uh, the Daystrom Institute. So, so she would be the older sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Okay, but they're okay. twins. See, now this doesn't, so she's already got a doctorate and she's 19. Wow. She's that's probably pretty, like Doogie Howser. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's all made up anyway. So why not? Right. Uh, and I guess that's just two, the two different origins that they're going through. So I kind of can understand being at that age and not really caring about, oh, or maybe going along with the mystery of, oh, I like that. I don't know everything about him, but I, I reiterate, I am not an authority on how women work. I have no idea. I, you can kind of tell that Narek is getting ready to get her prepared to reveal the truth about her synth nature. So he asks her about, oh, what kind of dreams? And are you sure it's an actual dream or is it something that was constructed from your memory? And then maybe you should talk to your mom about it. You talk to her every night. And then she says, how do you know that? And then he says, uh, he really doesn't respond. He's like, I hear things. And then she's like, Narek, Narek. And he, as he walks away, putting his coat on, he says, that's not my real name. And the door closes. And then it pans to uh, the picture of the mom and the twins. And next to it is an art doll there. I, I forget the name. I think it's like, there is a specific name for that guy. I have one of those in my house. Actually, I can see it right now. It's at the very end. It's, it's what art students use to uh, articulate what they're trying to oh. draw. 
Okay. It's a a standard thing you can find in any art shop. And next to it is a hand also, which I think is a reference to, you know, the many times you've seen Data take his hand off. And especially in Measure of a Man, that's the part that Riker takes off before he makes the, uh, the reference. Again, also the fact that it's a wooden doll both of them are pieces of wood is, I mm-hmm. think, a reference to the Pinocchio story. Uh, a wooden doll wanting to be a real person. Uh, so, yeah, very, very, very interesting stuff. Any, any, any other things you picked up? Anything else you'd like to? Yeah, I just I was wondering if perhaps the, the wooden nature of it was also some sort of indication of, you know, the nature that she's sort of this organic yet synthetic at the same time, because the wood is an organic material fashioned into the shape of a doll. I, I don't know if we have enough information about her yet to figure out sort of what her technology actually is, but but I'm wondering if, if there was something there. So it was just a thought that I had. I didn't really, we don't have enough to, to actually nail it down yet, but it was something I was thinking about. It all falls under the column of, we shall soon find out. I hope so too. It is, I'm just excited that those are the kinds of mysteries that we're dealing with. I really, really, I'm intrigued again so much uh, about anytime they throw like an idol or a figure of that kind and then they just start throwing in symbolism, starts connecting to Battlestar Galactica. That's, they're, they're, they're stringing my cords, man, for sure. From now we move to the scene where, now I hope you can tell me where it is in the ship, but we see inside the La Serena, we see Jurati mm-hmm. and Picard and Elnor talking to each other. It's basically an exposition scene about where they're going, what the nature of the Borg is. And as Picard gets ready to confront the Borg, he's coming to the realization that he has to confront that part of himself that he has kind of locked away inside him for a long, long time. And Jurati does the exposition, but really she's saying, oh, we know who you are. We know why you're scared because you were Locutus. And mm-hmm. she spouts off what happened with Locutus and Elnor is there and he's equally surprised. What did you think of that scene? Was it, a, it, was, it was a very interesting uh, dynamic that now Jurati, the Jurati we know now shares with Picard. What did you think of that scene? Jurati is on the edge of a knife. Um, she straight up murders Maddox in the previous episode. And I, I, I always hate to suggest stuff like this because I, I feel like I'm, I'm, she's in a very precarious situation because I feel like even the most cursory investigation of the logs would give it all away that, that she had murdered him, you know, and turned off the equipment or given him a shot and all that. And I think that she has to give an explanation here that satisfies them right up front. Because if they even take a cursory look at the logs or you know whatever sort of sensor data they have on the ship or look through the, uh, the automated medical system, you know, I, I think that they'd find out that she actually did it. So it is actually a very, very high stakes discussion for her uh, because she needs to shut all this down and get an explanation out that they will buy. Because uh, if they don't, she's done for. And, you know, Elnor, he's going to call it right up. You know, he's going to be like, oh, you are very nervous, which he does at one point. He says something sort of like that, right? And, and he calls her on it and she says, oh, you're, you're butting in now, right? Or he says it. But I, I, think, that, uh, I think that there's going to be a huge reconciling uh, when all this comes out. Because if there's one thing I'm pretty sure of, as sure as night follows day, all this is going to come out eventually and Gerardi's going to have a reckoning. And I want to come, I want to come back to the scene and watch it again. Once we, once we know about that. 
who do you think is jurati what what do you think her agenda is what what is she trying to do or do you are you just do you have any theories on that i think that she is a willing or unwilling participant in this whole thing uh i think that oh when she met her in that famous sunglass scene which caused a kerfuffle for no reason that anyone should care about uh when oh met her oh told her something mind melded with her and gave her something gave her some information something happened there in that scene that we did not yet to see where gerardi signed on for this either wittingly or unwittingly um we don't know that yet um it looks like it's witting but i'm i'm still open to believing that she's under a influence of a of a mind meld or or mind control or something as a as a possibility um maybe not likely at this point but she is definitely not on the up and up as we know and uh i i feel sort of bad uh for rios which is a little bit coming up in one of the next scenes and i think that uh, there's a lot of danger there so we we shall see what happens uh when everyone finds out what she did we'll talk about this a little bit more but what is even more interesting is people around picard finding out the ptsd that he has to live with because he was locutus what do you think of that that confrontation just before he actually has to go down to the cube what do you think is going through his mind just it's it must be hell just realizing that that is where he has to go to get things moving. Well, you have to look at the episode in both sides, right? Because he much later on, I mean, we're not going to be able to stick to a, a strict chronology here, Shashank, but much later on in the episode when he's talking with Hugh and he says something like, "Thank you for showing me this. I realize that they're all victims now." And and he sort of has this realization. You don't get that without first revisiting the horror of the assimilation, right? You need you need both halves of the bread to hold the meat in the middle, right? And and that's really what that was. So he needs to have that that recollection. He we need to have for the people who maybe aren't as familiar with all this stuff as yes. you and I are and many mm-hmm. of the listeners are. You need a little bit of a Gerardi character or somebody like that to say, well, at one time this character was assimilated by the Borg and they put nanoprobes in him and he had the things on his face and you know, you have to have all that explained. So there's a little bit of a exposition for the uninitiated there but i i think it was really important to have the the full horror of it shown to us earlier in the episode so that when he has his realization later about the borg it's a it's a more powerful moment and it makes it a richer meal so i was on board for that for sure one of my questions that i let off with at the beginning where do you think this is in the ship this is a new location we've not seen them be here Yeah, the only location we'd had has really been the main corridor like the combination bridge cargo hold transporter room. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in this one we finally get to see uh, the little crew cabins uh, off to the side so we get that and we get this little conference room. The the layout of the ship we don't know. Uh, I believe I saw a comment by Michael Shaban uh saying that it was a two deck ship that there's a, an upper and a lower deck. Um and I Uh, yeah that was on his instagram posts uh, i believe and i saw that was widely reported so it's a double deck ship and it's it is a cargo ship as we learned in the uh, episode where they went to free cloud so they have to have some sort of uh, cargo area so there you go so probably lots of unexplored areas on that ship we haven't seen yet interesting from here we follow picard as he goes on to study and he kind of does a bit of a google on himself as he walks in and he asks for certain search terms like the borg artifact and treaty and then the ui that is in his room starts throwing in screenshots and there there's some very interesting 
things that we connect to in this particular part of the scene. Now, I've, I picked up a few of them. It starts with uh, when we see the Borg cube for the first time and the Enterprise is firing on it, uh, mm-hmm. which is the Wolf 359 incident, if I remember correctly. And then, uh, and then we move on to, we do see a screenshot or a kind of an image of Romulan sitting together in a treaty. I believe that is from a Deep Space Nine episode. I forget which one. But uh, there is that. And then, among other things, it ends with Picard looking at himself on the screen of the Enterprise when we see Locketus for the first time. Mm-hmm. And as he touches his face in horror, we got to the opening credits. But that was a very powerful scene, right? Interesting things to show. Beautifully shot, beautifully acted, beautifully directed. And it really was one of the moments in the show when everything was just firing on all cylinders, right? You just have the direction, the acting, you have the set, you have the special effects, Mm -hmm. you have the actor, and you don't have to say all that much. Uh, You have the music going on, and you don't need any words really to describe anything or to, to sort of tell you what's going on. And you just feel the horror of it. And I think it was one of the high points of the episode for me. Same here. I quite enjoyed that scene, especially the way it ended. And I loved, again, an interesting uh, cinematographic choice, if you ask me. The end with Picard touching his face in horror, and then the opening credits is all about his face coming together in pieces, and then it cuts to kind of the same profile that we ended the the pre cold cut scene with. So that was pretty cool. And now after the credits, it opens with what I call the thirst football scene. As the kids say, it's a very thirst filled scene, just full of male thirst, female thirst. The youngs, the youngs say that. The youngs, the youths. I believe the youths (laughs) say that. The Gen Z's, the Gen ABC's, all of them say that. And uh, it opens with Rios playing football with himself. He, I, was, I found it surprising that it wasn't with one of the holograms that he's so rude to all the time. He's playing football kind of just with himself and he's shirtless. And we definitely are made aware that he's shirtless because the camera stays on his shirt, for a, on his shirt area for a while. And then as he kicks the ball into a direction... It lands and it's Jurati standing there, also in her night clothes. And they both walk up to each other. They start talking to each other. And Jurati asks him, why do you like space? That's where the conversation takes off. What did you think of this flirtatious scene, my friend? Uh, Beautifully acted. I mean, really beautifully acted. And first of all, that man is a beautiful man. Yes. Just incredibly beautiful. And uh, I totally understand why Jurati would would be interested in him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... You know, she's obviously got a lot of trauma in her head and she had to, the actor had to play that and she had to play with dealing with the fact that she killed basically her, her lover and, and now she's alone on the ship. She's, there's not anyone she can talk to about it. Um, she, she can't, you know, call up, oh, as you know, and sort of have like a BFF moment and be like, oh girl, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling so great. So what does she do? She, I, she decides to have a hookup, right? And she... I thought I thought that Rios was was respectful with her and didn't take advantage of her. Yeah, uh, which I felt was really important that that they played it that way. Yeah, yeah. And and I just thought that it was a really good scene for uh, for the actor because she had to portray it that you know she wanted to engage with him and 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 wanted to to invite him for the hookup, but 
she really couldn't say what was on her mind. So she had to play all these different things at once. Yes. And so I really admired the performances here. And I really admired the considerate way how Rios was uh, in, in it. He was very funny. I have to admit, I laughed out loud when she said, oh, I've never slept with the captain of anything. And he says, oh, I, I'd recommend it. You know, but it was, <laughs> you, you could have played that line 15 different ways. And I think the actor made a beautiful choice to just be very, um, guileless in how he said that, you know, with just a hint of humor, it was really just, just right. So I, I was really in, especially in the first half of this episode overall, I was just very taken with the performances and I just want to give a big thumbs up to, to all the, the cast for how they, how they performed on it because it was just so great. It really was. So that's ameliorate and guileless. That's two big words that this, I'm sorry. No, I, no, this I, is great. I, I'm not trying to play Scrabble or something over here. No, no, this is great. This is perfect. This is actually where we should have been at Polytrex all along, I'm realizing as we listen to you. But there are words that you're using that are so impressive. I'm surprised this is the first time on your show. I'm I'm sorry. No, please do not apologize, sir. As our listeners can tell, much like a wonderful, delightful captain, like someone who would be running the La Serena, our delightful John is very well-read and full of insightful, heavy, delightful dictionary word-filled thoughts, which Stop I appreciate. Stop it, you silly man. You're going <laughs> to give me a big head. Hey, so here, I have, a, I have an interesting point that I picked up. Maybe nobody else did, but I yeah. did. So here, as she, she kisses him, and then she steps back and says, you know, I have a superpower. I recognize mistakes as I am making them. Is this the first mention of uh, the word superpower in Star Trek? <laughs> well, you know, you're a big comics guy, Shashank. And, yes. and if, if listeners don't know that, I mean, you're a huge, you're a huge comics guy. So uh, props on you for picking that up. Uh, Thank you. I, I don't know if they've ever used that term before, but yeah. I would imagine that we could probably uh, do some Google foo and figure that out. But uh, off the top of my head, I think you might be right. The closest we've ever come to is when Kirk refers to Khan as Superman in Space Seed. Yes, he does. He calls them Superman, yes. uh, I believe, in the in the plural. So that that definitely did happen. Yeah, but I, I don't recall any any use of the word superpowers. Although I would suspect that if it ever had been used, it might have been in a Q episode, but I'm not sure. So as uh, the scene ends, we see them kiss again and then Jurati leading him off into her hope I presumably her quarters as they engage in some consensual assimilation. Now we cut to <laughs> consensual assimilation. Oh goodness. goodness now we goodness. cut to aboard the artifact. We cut to Narik and his sister Nerissa in Narik's quarters. And or as I like to call them the Ramu Lannisters. The Rom, uh, yeah, it was that that vibe is so creepy, man. That's just uh, uh just thinking about it gives me the heebie-jeebies. So in, we see them in their quarters. Narek walks in, and it, this is the first time we see in this episode the camera zooming into what I call the Narek's cube. Yes, the, the, cube, the, the Romulan uh, fidget spinner slash Rubik's cube. Yes, and it's clear so clearly a Rubik's cube, and. We see, I believe we've seen it before. I, I, if I remember correctly, we saw it in the scene where they go into the reclaimed people's quarters and one of them is doing a Rubik's Cube type thing. Yes. And so we've seen one of those before. This is just Narek's Cube that we've seen for the first time. We walk in and we see her playing with it. 
And Narek comes in and says, that's mine. And she's like, oh, you and your children's toys. And it's like, Is, isn't that the most brother and sister moment, though? Isn't it, though? You Between know, these uh, two, uh, yes. Yeah, like two, one sibling walks in and say, hey, that's my thing. Could, don't touch my thing, right? You're, you've got my toy, right? I just, I thought that was just perfect because that is the most brother-sister vibe that, you know, normal brother-sister vibe yes. that those two have ever had. I, I thought it was great. If this was the first episode anyone watched, they're like, why are these wife and husband? <laughs> Pretending like they're brother and sister. That is so weird. And so he takes that cue from her and he starts talking about what he has been up to. She, of course, again, mocks him about his connections with Soji and she calls her it. And just those those things continue. But essentially what we get from the scene is we find out that Narek wants to share some part of what he has talked to with Soji about how Soji is dreaming now. And then he makes this connection as he's playing with this cube about her cognitive dissonance, the disconnection between Soji's seemingly human life, where she's going around and talking to people and living a life. And then this inside closed away part of her that knows that she's not human, that she's a machine. And that cognitive dissonance needs to come together somewhere. And Narek theorizes that that is happening in her dreams. What yes. did you think of the scene? I thought, that, again, the connections they're laying, man. Now, you know this as a big Battlestar Galactica fan. That is so much Cylon. Actually, I did not think of Battlestar Galactica in this particular scene at all. I, I thought of another famous sci-fi film, which actually had the exact same uh, idea in it, which was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hmm. If, if you've watched the film, have you seen it? No, I've not. Have you, have you seen it? Well, I've tried whole, watching it and I, no joke, I fell asleep. No, it's okay. There's basically three different parts to the film. It's it's a film in thirds. And, you know, the first part is the part with the apes. And then it cuts to sort of, you know, the 2001 actual part of the film. And there's a, a space mission uh, on, on the USS Discovery to, to Jupiter. And the idea is that there's these five astronauts. Two of them are the astronauts that are actually driving the ship. So they're awake. And then three astronauts are in cryogenic suspension. And then there's the famous uh, AI, HAL, that, that is sort of the computer running the ship, right? That is, you know, a sort of a same kind of computer that, you know, you would think of as like an AI, right? And it's, you know, having conversations and playing chess with them and all that. And at one point in the film, spoiler warning, uh, the computer goes crazy and kills the three guys in, in suspension uh, and then tries to kill the other two uh, crew members as well. Open and the pod bay doors, huh? Yeah, that, that was after this point. Yeah, one one of them is outside the ship and he, in in a little one of their little shuttlecraft, and he's trying to get back in, and Hal won't let him in, right? And that's that's one of the things that happens. But that happens after all this. So the question is, why did Hal go crazy? And the answer is in the book, which is that that Hal's primary mission was to was to achieve the mission outcomes and to assist the crew. That was his primary programming. The problem was is that the actual purpose of the mission was hidden from the live crew members. It was to go and explore this alien artifact at Jupiter that they did not know about. That they thought they were going out there on like an exploratory mission of Jupiter, but it was actually to explore this alien artifact that the suits at NASA and the government knew about and, and didn't. Only the guys who were in cryogenic suspension knew about that. The two guys who were awake didn't. And the computer couldn't reconcile the fact that it w- that its main goal was to assist the crew with data and to not give them the data on what their actual mission was. And it couldn't reconcile the two things, that that was its mission and that's what it was trying to do, but it couldn't do it and it couldn't tell the truth. And so the two main tenets of its programming sort of crumbled and it went insane. 
that's a little bit of what we're seeing here is that is that the the soji uh, synth sort of has this this set of lies that is its life but yet it knows that it's not real and it would have to know that and so at some level right because all the biological things i imagine it's not doing uh, we we can easily infer that it's it's not using the, the the restroom right unless it's just sort of building into its programming that it walks into a restroom and sort of turns itself off for ten seconds just like when it's talking to a, to mom uh, and if you watch very carefully the scene where it's talking to the mom it sort of freezes there when she falls asleep right and then wakes up when she does right so it that's all a, a programming artifact. So it's uh, something we've seen in sci-fi before uh, where the computer is given sort of these conflicting, uh, this conflicting information and has to reconcile it somehow. In this particular case, the computer gets nightmares. In 2001, it turned homicidal. So either way, bad things are going to happen when you can't tell the computer the truth. Wow, that was a great sell for 2001 A Space Odyssey. I do need to sit down and watch that movie. Now, th- that was an interesting scene for a lot of reasons, but I... One of the things they do is here, they're laying the groundwork for the Rubik's Cube. And at the end of the scene, he opens it and a little figure comes out. A little wooden doll. Yes. Another reference to a wooden doll or Pinocchio. And we find out how it does connect to Soji, who is, for the lack of a better term, also another wooden doll. So from here, we jump into the bridge scene, the one big bridge scene in this episode where the essential conflict is that Rios, as they get closer and closer to the artifact, says, hey, Picard, I'm trusting you to know that when we get into this really violent enemy-filled territory, you'll know how to get on that ship with basically nothing on us. They they just start talking to each other and Jurati volunteers help in her way and they essentially they realize they're at a standstill. And then that's when they bring in the big guns, Rafi, who is now in her full addiction mode, drinking and smoking the snake leaf. The, the term you're looking for, Shashank, is she's on a bender. No, the, the, the fact is that a very good friend of mine has a serious alcohol problem. And so I'm, I'm very familiar with what it is. And so I'm very familiar with how it works. And uh, that is the term. And that is what it is. And can I just say I am in awe of Michelle Hurd and what a mm-hmm. wonderful and amazing talent she is. And I think yeah. Star Trek is lucky to have her. Mm-hmm. And this scene, I think, is a great example of that. Uh, because that's the one thing I love in Star Trek, I think, uh, that in an episode, that's the one thing that really jumps out at me if it's good, and that's the performances. And this episode just had spectacular performances. But really, Michelle Hurd's performance in this scene, I think, is just really just over the top because she is literally stumbling around, and in a moment of clarity, she speaks the absolute truth to her friend and says, I'm going to drink myself to death. Mm-hmm. She says this. Yeah. And, and I just don't want it to get lost in our enthusiasm for the show and in our love for the characters that Picard, Rios, Gerardi, even Elnor, they are using this person who is literally on a self-destructive bender. They are using her to accomplish a goal. <laughs> you know, that is not beautiful. That is, that is not elevated. That is not glorious. So I just want to note that the and you know I, I not that I think it's their responsibility for her addiction because it isn't I think it is definitely noteworthy that they are using this woman who's in a very very bad place to do a thing and I just feel like we should just acknowledge that that's all I want to say about that 
I hear you. What what John is referring to is so at this standstill, they call in the big guns. Would who would be Rafi? Who is? I believe there is another term for it. She's relapsing. Absolutely, she's going yep. back into her addiction, and you can see her holding a bottle of alcohol and then smoking the snake leaf. And she yeah, says, she has a, a space drink and a space vape right before she gets on the call, mm-hmm. and she puts in a call to Emmy. Somebody at Starfleet who is a captain, you can tell that from the pips. And she starts talking to her. Clearly, they're old friends. And she says, hey, just so you know, I'm headed on a ship and I'm hours away from the Borg cube. And we'd be violating all kinds of treaties if we don't have what are called Federation diplomatic credits that apparently they can use to get into and out of this place on the authority of the Federation. Now, John, are you familiar with the Federation diplomatic credits? Well, I think that's a, it's a normal thing that happens even today. Uh, if, if, you, if you're a country of any, any country, it doesn't have to be a, a, a country like in the, you know, sort of the, the biggest countries of the world, right? You could be some little tiny country somewhere. If you send an ambassador somewhere, the, the number one thing that you send them with is an ambassadorial credential. And that's the first thing an ambassador does when they go to a new country is they have to present their credential to the powers that be. Uh, whether it be the king, prince, uh, potentate, uh, big dean, back, big dean, mac daddy, almighty, or whoever, uh, you have to present your ambassadorial credential, right? So that that's a real thing that actually happens. So I thought that was fine. I mean, I totally got it, and it seemed like a really good solution. Uh, it seemed like the right thing to to do. Uh, it seemed like a, a good play. When Rafi takes a swig off the alcohol, the camera also shows Picard, who is just bowing his head down. Had this been the Picard of TNG, you assume this would have stopped for him intervening and trying to do something. But because Picard is where he is, he realizes there are some things he just cannot help with. At what, least what, what could he possibly have said, Shashank? What could he possibly have said? You know, oh, you, you, you shouldn't, you know, you should put the bottle down. He's going to be like, she's going to be like, oh, you, you care so much. I could tell by all of your calls and letters over the past 14 years how much you care, JL, right? Well, it, has he said I'm sorry to her? Has he? I have not seen it if he has. Right? I just I I I I acknowledge that he's not in a position to tell her how to be at this point, right? Sure. Yeah, and yeah. I and and that's I think one of the things going right back to one of the first things you asked me about, right? Which is what do I feel about Picard, uh, the show broadly speaking, not not the character. And that's one of the things that's really important is that the character Picard, all that we've seen of him in TNG and in those TNG movies was sort of Picard as the captain. And even in the very few circumstances episodes like Best of Both Worlds Part 3, which for some reason is labeled family, even though it's Best of Both Worlds Part 3, that's one of the few episodes where he's not the captain, right? Mm -hmm. There's very few opportunities in the whole show where he's not the captain. And here he's in a place where he's not the boss of her. Right. If you're on the Enterprise in his ready room, he can tell you where to and what for. And they're in Starfleet and he's a captain and you're not. And he can do the things that he wants to do. This is not that. This is a very different set of circumstances with completely different dynamics. And he's not the boss of anyone. They are all there at their own sufferance. And if they want to tell him to get lost and pound sand, they can, except maybe for Elnor, who won't do that. Uh, but, but the rest of them, well, actually, Elnor does that in kind of his own way later on in the episode, too. Maybe we'll talk about that. But they're of their own free will. So he cannot tell them really what to do. And so what, what would he say? Right. And, and so there's sort of the two levels, right? Which is, does he have the moral standing to say something as the leader of the mission and, and sort of quote unquote, the boss? No. 
as a quote unquote friend, right? He's abrogated his responsibilities in that regard because he never, he never talked to a woman for 14 years. And the first time he shows up, he's asking her for all kinds of things, right? Oh, I need a ship. I need a pilot. I need this information. It's like, you know, I, she basically ruined her life following this guy and he threw her out. He, he ejected her. He cut her off, right? After the mission failed, right? He, she gave up her family for him. She, she gave up everything for him and and he didn't really show any appreciation for it he never even gave her a thank you as far as i can tell and some of this by the way is made clear in the una mccormick book as well because uh, it actually gives you in that book spoiler warning for the book uh you actually get the conversation where the raffi character calls her husband uh back when they're about to do the rescue uh to start it and she says oh i'm not i'm not going to be coming home i'm, I'm going to be going off on this mission with this uh, Admiral Picard to do this incredible thing. And I probably won't be home for years. And the husband is basically like, you've been gone so long, hon, this is about it. You know, and he basically draws a line in the sand and says, look, I'm raising my kid by myself here. Why am I even involving you in anything? You know, it's basically that kind of conversation. You've not been home and now you're telling me you're never going to be home. And she, with full knowledge of forethought says, you know, I'm, I'm doing this mission because it's important. And, you know, you can accept that. Uh, as as a as a valuable decision to have made that she's going to put the the saving the lives of these Romulans over her family that's fine, but then Picard doesn't even acknowledge that. That's harsh, man. That's harsh. Really good, John. Thanks for sharing that with me. I I don't know how to respond to that except just saying you know I agree and I wish at this point he could have just <laughs> she mentions his ego. I wish he could have maybe put his ego aside and at least talked to her, said something that it could approach the the universe of an apology or hey, or a way to make it up. But that's not where we are. Anyway, so uh, this call ends with Emmy essentially giving them the credits because she realizes she has to make that decision because if she doesn't, it will be a violation of what used to be the neutral zone. It will basically be an act of war with the Romulans. And she says, as a friend, Rafi, please never call me back. And that scene ends and we cut to the Soji Narek walk and talk. So can I just say one thing about that, which is I loved the fact that they chose to write the scene that way. Because how many times in Star Trek previously do you have a case where a character needs something and they're going to be like, oh, I'm going to call my old friend that no one has ever heard of in the show before. And they're the exact person in the right place. And you call them up and they're like, oh, Shashak, you need this like incredibly difficult thing? No problem. Just for you, my friend. You know, call me anytime. Bye. <laughs> and I mean, we've seen that scene a lot. And I really liked it that they were bold enough to say, oh, you want me to do this thing? Fine, I'll do it. Never talk to me again, you know, and hang up the phone. I, I just, I, I admired that choice it's not something we got a lot of in Star Trek, and I think it struck me as more real, especially given the nature of the ask and what was going on. So beautiful. Chef's kiss. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, to me, that's more non-Federation because they're not part of the Federation anymore, these people. They're human. They're, like you said, they're real people. They're just citizens. They're just no people going power. Power. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's, so we are now really seeing how the Federation treats people that are not Starfleet. All this time, we've been seeing people that are in Starfleet or answer to people who are in Starfleet, and they get everything they want. And people who are not, they get broken relationships and never talk to me again over what, you know, if, um, of course, things will not go well. We find out that out at the end of the episode. But if it did go well, nobody would probably have ever found out that Picard got these diplomatic federation credits. It would, it would have just been a simple thing. 
but the fact that that friendship was broken was interesting. And from here, we get this Soji Narek walk and talk. They're walking in the Borg cube. And this is where Narek kind of, again, does a little more groundwork on what he's getting her to have epiphanies and revelations on. He says, you know, uh, we kind of monitor all the signals that come in and out of the ship. And when, and some of them do get flagged if they follow a pattern or are kind of sensed as out of the normal. And the way I know how you talk to your mom every night is the call lasts exactly 70 seconds before you fall asleep. And then Soji's like, well, that's impossible. There's no way that's true. And then uh, Narek says, well, why don't you just go and try it out, see what happens. And then at this point, we, there's another scene, but I'll just get get to the scene that is more important, in my opinion, is Soji does go back into a room. And she sits down at her desk and she makes a call to her mom. And she, for the first time, realizes that as she's talking to her mom, she's starting to fall asleep. So she picks up a little pen or some kind of pokey instrument, pokes herself on the hand, but that doesn't keep her from falling back asleep. And as she falls back asleep, you realize that the, pro, that the call that she's on with her mom, who's on the screen, it glitches and then it brings back up this smiling face, presumably for the call to start over. It's showing you what we've kind of suspected all along is that mom is not real. Uh, what did you think of these scenes, uh, John? Do you, do you think Narek is doing any of this because he really cares for her or he's just being very subtle? What, what do you think of this revelation? What do you think it says about the relationship? I, I want to withhold my comments on the Narek Soji relationship until we talk about the uh, the Romulan uh, Zalmac, or as I like to call it, the Romulan Big Mac. Uh, so their little meditation <laughs> scene, because I'm not going with their phony baloney Romulan words. So uh, it's the Romulan Big Mac meditation scene, because um, I, I, I'll have more to say there on it. But uh, I think you know, just as a storytelling phenomenon, you, you always have these scenes where a character in the show is finding out something that the audience already knows. So we all know what the outcome is. We all know it's already fake, right? So when you're watching a scene like this, that, you know, she's, she's fake, she's an android. We know this. There's not a doubt about it. You know, it's not like, oh, maybe she's a real girl. No, she's really an android. It's, it's in the show. We already knew that before the scene begins. So the only thing we get to do is just enjoy the performance of the actor uh, doing the scene. And I thought she acted it really well. And I thought they uh, had, they used the opportunity to put in a lot of neat little Star Trek references, by the way. So if you look at, uh, there's like a, a flotter lunchbox of some kind, which is a callback. We've to- not gotten back to that part yet. That will oh. be when sh- she does wake up from the call and then she f- starts doing the thing. Oh, okay. But, okay. But yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some great little references and things in there yes. later, but uh, you know, so it's a nice little scene. It's acted very well and uh, I, I really enjoyed it, but you know, it's, it, I mean, what's the tension, right? Because we already know where this is going and it's just an opportunity for them to execute on it. So these kinds of scenes in shows, I'm always like, all right, let's get to the next thing. Cause we're not going to find anything new here. So the little scene that I was referring to is in between both these scenes, there's a scene in which, Rafi is being tucked in to her bed by Rios, yes. who again, he is in a very, he's in a position where a woman is very vulnerable and the consideration is shown. He's not, there's nothing actually going on. He's just helping a friend. Yep. And uh, in this scene, she reveals to him that she has a son and that the son is about to have a child. And 
she's basically abandoned by them. And Rios, as she falls asleep, takes away the bottle of alcohol and says, you know, none of us have it right. Now, this was an interesting scene, but I don't know if you noticed, but on Rafi's nightstand, there is also a hand. It's, a, it's not a, quite a wooden hand, but it's clearly a sculpture of a hand. So the hand metaphor continues. In this oh, I did not notice this. Okay, very interesting. Very interesting. Now, I would have to think about this because do you think that, that Rafi's the kind of person who brings like decorations with them when they travel? Or was that something that Rios already had there in the cabin? right? So if it was something that was already there, then it's Rios's and that might tell us something about that. Or is it something that, that Rafi brought with her that tells us something about her? So that's interesting. I'll have to go back and check that out. I didn't catch that. Good one, Shashan. Yeah. Hey, that's what I'm here for. That's why I watched the episode five times. So you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then we cut back to the bridge and now without Rafi, it's Picard realizing as they see the artifact on the view screen that he needs to go down there and they get very strict instructions from the cube and he's given directions. He's told that only he can be beamed aboard and he is given coordinates that he has to be beamed aboard to. Of course, Elnor is mad. He's saying, you know, I should join you. And then Picard says, no. Uh, and he says, no, I, nobody cares about these diplomatic credits. I can, I'm stronger than that. And he says, well, do you think I'm, I'm excited about going down there alone? I'm not, but, it's better than not going at all, which is how it'll end up if you show up. So as Picard prepares to beam aboard the artifact, Soji wakes up. And this is where she throws her phone aside, gets up and starts pulling out all her things. There is a lunchbox, which is John. Tell us what is that a reference to? Oh, that's uh, Flotter, who was a character that we saw uh, in Deep Space, uh, not Deep Space Nine, in Voyager. Uh, Naomi Wildman uh, was uh, playing around in the holodeck, The Adventures of Plotter. So, Flotter. So that was a really nice little callback. And you got to see all the other little uh, doodads and, and things that she had. And there were some cute little Easter eggs in there. I'm sure uh, the folks over at Trek Court got high quality screen caps of all that stuff. If, if anyone's interested, go check them out over there. But uh, it was really nice to see. Uh, and I always really enjoy those things when they can do it. So it looks great. By the way, is Fuji and Mugatu, because I'll I'll say he sure looks like one. See, so Scooji, if for our listeners, is the fluffy doll that I have had theories about since the first time I've seen this doll. And I have so many, my theories just continue to become bigger and bigger. Much like that puzzle box, I am almost like unpuzzle, I'm unsolving it to where I'm making it more and more complicated in my head. Right now, the prevailing theory is that it's the salt monster. From oh, nice. The first episode because it's the white fur with the blue uh, mane almost. So that's my theory. But I, I still don't know. I hope we find out what there is an actual creature or a species that this particular fluffy doll represents. But so in it's, this a, scene, it's a Star Trek Teletubby, man. It's great. <laughs> it's Star Trek's version of Baby Yoda, is what it is. And, uh, <laughs> So Soji wakes up, she starts throwing out all her belongings and she pulls out this aging instrument, almost like a device that tells her how old a certain instrument is, like something an archaeologist would probably use in carbon dating. Or at this point, it probably got to researchers that they might be using or she is using probably as part of her autopsies and things she does when she's helping the Borg become unclaimed. And everything she scans from the photos that she has in her lunchbox to her clothes, to her books, to 
he, uh, the ending in which she pulls out a necklace and she scans that and they all reveal that the most probable age for all of them is 37 months. And she throws it at the wall and she starts crying. It was a powerful scene, John, right? Oh, it was beautiful. Very well done. And I thought that the, uh, the, the way that they did the camera, I thought the performance, I thought all the, the props that she's using and the set decoration in the background in the scene, which you know, has been constant. It's not new for the scene, but I, I thought it was all just great and it was really well done. But then again, you know, it's a scene where we sort of know, we know what's happening. Right. It's just the character finding out things that the audience already knows. So, you know, it doesn't have the tension there for me, but I thought it was really well executed. And we do get to the actual part where she learns more and more about what is going on. What in deep contrast to her father, Data, who from the beginning of his quote unquote birth knows that he's a machine. I thought this was an interesting way to show or her character to progress about her almost having to find out that she is not human and her fate is not to be one of the things that she's supposed to be. But in fact, she is far from it. She is a a synth or, you know, the exact nature might be up for debate. I'm sure that is part of the mystery, but she's not human. And she is coming to that revelation and we'll find out more about this as the episode progresses. From here, we cut to what I call the locutus walk because Picard beams onto the artifact and at once he is reliving some of his deepest, darkest horrors as he sees mm-hmm. the body again. He is walking to those coordinates, almost like a bridge where he's supposed to walk to. And as he starts, he fumbles. He struggles to regain his balance. And then the scenes flash back to him as Locutus. The scenes flash back to him being threatened by the Borg Queen. There is that little flashback to first, first contact. And he gets to this bridge that has no rails and he's fully taken over by those memories. He's about to fall when two Borg hold two him XBs. Two XBs hold him. And uh, he, he thinks they're holding him and he's struggling to break free when a voice from the distance yells, they don't want you to fall. And then you see that it's a shadow of Hugh. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that scene? We'll talk about more of what happens when Hugh and he start talking, but just the locutus walk. What did you think about that? Uh, well, I guess there are two things. First is when they give you these exact beam in coordinates, I would have thought that they would have been there to have met him. I, I thought that would have been part of it. I thought it was a little strange uh, when you go to a place and you, you, you're told where to be and when to be, and you're just sort of in a giant empty room. <laughs> I thought, wow, that was kind of strange. Uh, but the, the scene was really well done. Uh, and I think that it was earned in that Picard still has a lot of issues with being Locutus, right? He dealt with some of it in Best of, Best of Both Worlds Part 3. And he dealt with it, uh, he talked about it a little bit with Seven in one of the previous episodes, right? You know, he still hasn't reclaimed all of his humanity yet, but he's still working on it. So there's a lot of unresolved stuff there with him. And, you know, I, I hate to repeat myself, but I said it earlier in that, I think it, it, it was necessary for him to have this moment of terror so that he could have a moment of realization later. And I think it made that other moment much more powerful and more delicious and uh, more earned. So um, I, I, I was right there and I, I felt it. And I just thought it was beautifully shot, beautifully performed and beautifully done. So from here, we move to Hugh, who comes into the light and Hugh hugs our delightful Picard and they both start talking and 
just Picard is so overjoyed to see Hugh and he says, I will take a friendly face and they hug each other. If people have been following Jonathan Nalarko's social media, he shared that the place he went to, to do this hug scene is he thought of what he would do if his father who had passed away 17 some years ago had come back to life. And that's what he did. And so the emotion you're seeing is coming from a very special tragic place for the actor who plays you, Jonathan Milarco. Now they start walking around the bar queue. And they say, I, I have to add that they had to say that the hug was not scripted. That, that was something that, that the actors came up with. I, I did see that on Twitter. Yes, you're right. In that tweet, you're absolutely correct. In that tweet, uh, Picard says that we need to have some kind of greeting. And then he says, or Jonathan Dalgo says, well, yeah, well, I should I should hug you. And, and then... And boy, oh boy, right? Another moment in this episode, right? The first one, I think, was that conversation with Rafi on the bridge with the alcoholism. This is another moment, like nobody would be hugging Picard in a, and him liking it in TNG, right? That was just, that was just not really done. I, 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 I could be wrong, but I don't recall him ever getting a hug on TNG and him engaging and liking it, right? I could be wrong. People can tweet at me on that, you know, and I'll, I'll take it. But it was just a moment to say, this is not the same character that we're used to, right? He's, he's reacting in a very different way, especially like early Picard, who was much more standoffish, right? And much more officious, as you know, I am the captain, right? You know, keep the children away from me. They disturb my aura of captainness, right? And here he is just having a much more human moment. And I appreciated it and loved it. I thought it was just great. Firing on all cylinders, man. That this is it's moments like that when I'm watching the show and I'm like, this this is what I want. If people want to tweet thoughts about John's hugness about uh, Picard in TNG, you can do that on at Trek Profiles. That's T-R-E-K-P-R-O-F-I-E-F-I-L-E-S on Twitter. Yes, indeed. You do that. And <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm happy, to be, uh, I'm happy to be corrected on that. Just um, off the top of my head, I, I couldn't think of a moment where he was happy to be hugged by someone, exception of maybe his brother at the end of family. But um, I, I think that's something that's very rare. From here, they start walking and Hugh shows Picard around the artifact. And you can tell that, Picard is dealing with a lot of PTSD as he sees XBs walking around and he bows his head in shame at one point and Hugh says, you're not on a bar cube. This is not a bar cube. This is an artifact. And this is a place where people come to be unclaimed. We're doing the opposite of what the Borg used to do. And we're called mm-hmm. XBs. And then Picard says XBs and he's like, yeah, XBs, that's what we call ourselves. Getting a name is the first step to creating a new identity. I learned that on the Enterprise, is what Hugh says. And of course, we know that because we've all seen Iborg. But if you haven't, you should see the awesome episode, Iborg, in which we first meet Hugh. What did you think of this scene? It was a, the, the dialogue was very, very interesting. What I really liked is that in this one episode, you see the contrast of two people who have been deeply affected by Picard and where they are. Rafi is seemingly at her worst place and Hugh is in his best place. He's doing, he's taking the good deed that somebody once did for him and he's carrying it forward to a whole bunch of people. And it's interesting that he's a Federation citizen. Hopefully we'll find out about how that happened or maybe it was just his past that he went back to and got claim for. But what did you think of that scene, John? Boy, it was just really well done. Uh, There was a... (laughs) 
This is where I'm going to make a little pivot. This is where in the episode, I think things started to not work for me. Uh, there, there was a couple of points that, that I got a little hung up on. And one of them is that Picard sort of lost the urgency of the whole thing. Uh, because I can't remember if it was this little bit or the next little bit, but he says to Hugh, you have to take me to Dr. Asha immediately. And then he was like, let me take you on a tour. And so they go on a tour and he's like, I, the whole point was to find Dr. Asha Soji right away. And he says to him, I need to see her immediately. And they go on a tour of the medical facility. And I thought, what, like, wasn't, weren't we going to go do the urgent thing? But I mean, and I'm glad they did it. I'm glad that the episode went the way it did. It's just, I, I felt like Picard kind of lost the urgency of what he was there for. And I, I didn't understand sort of the choice and how they put that together in that he's got this incredibly urgent thing. He's come all this way. It's critical that he find her. And they take a, a tour of the, the medical reclamation section, which I'm saying was very important and I'm glad they did it. But just the timing of the whole thing, it's like I thought we were in this urgent sort of moment to find her and instead we have this other thing happening. So it was just a little weird to me. And I, I've not quite sort of figured out in my head what was going on there. Uh, maybe I missed something though. So I'm, I'm happy to be set straight, Shashank. Please, please help me. Well, John, I will say I am not sure why they made that choice, but... I'm glad Picard knows that that stuff. It's a mistake I personally am willing to forgive because I love the episode so much. Oh, I, I am too. It's just something I just didn't quite figure out as I was watching. I'm like, now why are they having this long conversation? Because I thought there was this urgent thing they were supposed to do. So it's sort True. of like when, uh, you know, in an episode where they're like, oh, quick, the thing's going to explode in 10 seconds. What do you think we should do, Kishank? You know, it's like, oh my God, <laughs> we've got to do the thing. <laughs> but now that we're here and talking about that medical section scene, uh, so is is this the first time after I Borg that somebody mentions something close to sympathy for the Borg? Because as Picard watches around the things that are happening around him, where he sees their their faces are being worked on, and Hugh shares some more about how they're being unclaimed and they're trying to give their lives back to them, he says, "You know, you're really doing something incredible here." And he says. Uh, this is the first time that people are seeing the Borg as what they truly are. They're victims, not monsters. Is this the first time that we've seen that after iBorg? I think you're right. I think it uh, it is a, a big moment. And I think that when when the story of the Picard show is finished, and I think I think we all know that this will be the last we'll ever see of Picard is when the show is done. We're not going to see any more Patrick Stewart doing Picard. Um, you know, after the three seasons that they have planned out, I think that this scene is probably an axis upon which the whole character revolves uh, when it comes to the Borg story of Picard, because this is the big realization for him, right? And it, it's what I've been saying in those other scenes we were talking about earlier is that for him to have the realization that, you know, they're not monsters, these are people that had this done to them just like him. That's a that's a major moment, and I don't think that he will ever relate to the Borg in the same way again after this. It's a very profound and deep shift for him to realize that that they're all victims just like him. Uh, they they are not these unfeeling monsters that that had this done that that were doing this to him. They had it done to them as well, and they deserve uh, our sympathy, uh, and they deserve. Uh, better than they got uh, from from a lot of the people who were against them. And so when you approach the Borg from a place of compassion, 
I think it changes very radically uh, the actions that you might take. And that's not to say that, you know, when you got a board cube chasing you, you shouldn't open fire on it. But I, I think it does change the calculus of, of how you have to behave when you're approaching them. So if you were to go back to the episode and say, you know, should we infect the Borg with this uh, uh, data virus, right? I mean, the answer is now it's ever more clearly no than it ever was before, right? It would have been less of a debate than it ever was before. So what a beautiful moment for Picard to have. And that's why I said, I, I'm, I'm glad the scene was here and I like it. I just find it very strange that, you know, it's sort of, we were right in the middle of this big uh, uh, moment of, of urgency and then we, we took a little tour here. But man, what a great scene. So as the scene ends, Hugh makes reference to the queen. And he says, well, our queen used to be a Borg, but now she's a Romulan. What is he talking about? Do you know who this Romulan I, queen is? I am still debating this. And I'm thinking, is he making an oblique reference to Nerissa? I, I don't know. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, was it more metaphorical in that, you know, we're here at the, you know, serving the Romulans sort of, you know, globally, right? So like the Romulans are our queen. Is that what he was talking about? Or was he referring to a specific Romulan? You know, I, I even saw a speculation on Twitter. And again, this is speculation. And I, this is literally, you know, stuff I read on the internet. So take it in that way. But like, could there be like a, a Sela out there that we suddenly get, you know, and that's the, or maybe the actual Sela. And that's like the Romulan who's behind the, the curtain that we don't know about, you know, and that's an interesting, you know, sort of fangasm kind of idea, but yeah, yeah. You know, it, are they referring to something that we haven't seen yet? Or was it an oblique reference to Nerissa? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we shall see. But it's something that, again, I'm, I'm still uh, thinking about and can't wait to see where it goes. It'd be interesting if Sila is the head of uh, Jacques Vosch. Oh, that'd be wild, man. That'd be wild. I don't know. It's, I, I'm always hesitant uh, to, to sort of speculate that it's these characters we all know. Because I, I don't know. I, I feel like they want to do new stuff. I don't yeah. know. We'll, we'll see. So... From here, it cuts to the Rafi Rio scene. And now Rafi's back. She's feeling a little better. Rios makes her some coffee or replicates her some coffee. And they start theorizing about why that even though Picard is down there on the artifact, that the Talshiad know what Soji looks like because they already killed Daj. And then they, uh, they start asking questions to each other about why would they even keep her alive, her being Soji. And unless they really want something from her. Narek and Soji in the room and Soji is showing all these things that belong to her. And she's saying, hey, uh, so just so you know, I found out everything I own must be a lie. And she breaks down crying and Narek comforts her saying, you know, there's a way I can help you out on this. And he, he mentions this place called the Jalmak or a ritual called the Jalmak. But I want to talk to you a little bit about the room itself that they're in. Now we see there is almost like a drawing desk that Soji has. Mm -hmm. So clearly she paints in her spare time, much like her dad. And did you notice any interesting paintings? I noticed a cross, almost like a cross on the top. Oh, I, I, I would have to go back and check that out. Uh, I was mostly just enraptured at looking at all the uh, ripped up photos and all the stuff. You know, I was trying to pick out uh, more Star Trek Easter egg type stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did not notice anything particularly interesting there, but uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you said. You, you see a cross image. Did you, did you see anything else? You'll have to tell me because I didn't pick up too much there. Yeah, the paintings look mostly abstract and they're mm -hmm. design based. I almost saw like a tree. Were, like it looked, uh, this could just be me projecting, but it looked like the scene we saw Data in in the first episode, 
where oh. he's drawing by the vineyard and he's drawing this tree. Uh, this He's not drawing a tree, he's drawing by a tree. So it kind of looked like that. So maybe that was just me projecting. But from but anyway, from here we go to them walking toward the Jalmak and they get to a chamber where a guy, a Ramil guy is standing as a guard and he's saying, you know, she cannot go into the Shalmak. That is not for the round years. And then uh, Narek basically brushes him aside and they walk into this hollow deck type ritual, which is basically a room. Uh, I, I thought it was like an octagonal or a hexagonal room and had a light set up in a pattern that you could walk through. Uh, almost like if I could... Best example I can come up with is like an uh, like a driving crash course that you're taking on a co- on a pre-filled course, which has all the signs that you can walk around in or drive around in, but it's just inside a room and it's just lights that they set up for for her to walk around in. And Narek says, "Take off your shoes," and she takes off her shoes. The and- second time he has her take off her shoes, by the way, I think he likes robot feet. I'm not sure. Oh, I think he likes all of a robot, my friend, not just the feet. And so they begin and Narek says, hey, close your eyes. And he makes her close his eyes and he says, we are essentially going into the dream that you had earlier. And this time, the maze that you're walking on, when you close your eyes, will be the dream that you're walking in. And we, if you remember from the very first scene, the dream ends when she's called by her father or her attention is taken away when, she, when her father calls her. He says, this time when that happens, don't stop. Keep walking in the direction you're trying to walk in to see what is on the other side in that laboratory. So what did you think of the scene, John? Uh, Just the scene overall, it was very well played. And we'll talk about the revelations at the end, but the direction, the cinematography, the music, I think the music really worked in the scene. Oh, the the music was great. Um, The the acting was great. Uh, The uh, whole way it was shot was great. The room looked great. I will say the whole idea of the Zal Big Mac uh, seemed just sort of underwhelming to me. Uh, I sort of expected more. You know, okay, we're going to go into this top secret Romulan ritual, which is not seen to outsiders. You know, okay, great. You know, what's it going to be? All right, just close your eyes and walk around. You know, and I was like, oh, that, that's it? I, I kind of wanted more. <laughs> I kind of wanted more from it. And, you know, I mean, it was kind of cool that he's like giving out the, the Romulan names for it, you know, and all that. But I don't know. It just seemed kind of, yeah. Uh, now, having said that, I enjoyed sort of what they were doing and sort of the, the in-the-moment stuff, but I was expecting something to be a little bit more designed for what we got, uh, but it was okay. I understand we had to get to the objective, um, and that's the part that I was – that's the part that we had to get to was we, we knew that this was the scene where she's going to wake up. And uh, we had to get to that. So uh, I just wish we'd gotten a little more out of the Zal Big Mac than what we got. Uh, John is clearly making fun of the name, but it's Jalmak. It's <laughs> Z-H-A-L-M-A-K-H. Before we began, he's, he told me, he said, I'm not going to pronounce the names. They're silly. I'm going to make up my own name. So he's just living up to his Trek profile. So it's John Krikorian character. You, you don't have to explain that. The listeners are smart, man. <laughs> they, they can figure it out. And so I thought it was, I thought it was an interesting take. To me, it felt like it's their version of a holodeck. And instead of everybody in the Starfleet style of living where they use it to do whatever they want to fulfill their innermost desires. Clearly the Romulans have a different take on it. They use it as a form of prayer and they use it very specifically 
very meditatively and with a lot of intent. So that is, I thought it was an interesting take, much like the idol worship that you see the Bajorans do when they open their little, uh, their, their orbs and you see light mm-hmm. coming out. This, uh, to me, it was just a new, interesting layer of Romulan religion. So that I thought was pretty interesting. So, hey, now we go back into the room that Sojik's walking in. Her father, father calls to her. And this time what we see her turning to her father and we see that the father doesn't have a face. It's, it's clearly very uncanny right. valley. No, no features on the face. It's, it's almost like the, uh, the shadow of a face uh, that's on, on the father's face. And he doesn't run to her. He just stops and looks at her after calling out to her and she turns and keeps walking. And as she keeps walking, she comes up on the stable, almost like an operating table. And it's the disassembled pieces of a wooden doll, a life-size mannequin that looked like Soji. And uh, she, and then Narek says, don't stop, keep, keep going, keep going. And she, she says, he says, look up, look up, what are you seeing? And she looks up and she sees these two red words mm-hmm. next to each other. Yep. And the red that's, yeah. And, and that red moon. Yeah. And that's where we cut back to reality. Now, John, what did you think of these revelations? Again, the Pinocchio theme continuing here. For people who do not remember, if you rewatch Measure of a Man, you'll see that Riker says, he mentions Pinocchio by name uh, when he takes off uh, Data's arm. So that's why I'm saying the Pinocchio theme continues here. Now, what do you think are these two worlds? What do you think of the Pinocchio nature of it all? Just give us your thoughts, man. Yeah, I think, well, this is the scene where we actually find out something we didn't know, uh, which is we find out exactly what they were after, which was trying to figure out where she was constructed. Uh, that That's the whole point of this, right? Was it, they, they could have killed her at any time. And just like they did with Dodge, right? Uh, but the point was they wanted to find out where she came from so that they could go blow it up or go see if there were more of them. Or I guess, it does, I guess maybe the way they were talking, it seems like they knew that there were more of them. Uh, and I'm going back to that scene between the Romulan Lannister twins before where they were saying, you know, the point is to kill all of them, right? Well, that indicates to us that there's more. Um, and by the way, an interesting bit of specu- speculation I heard on this point was uh, going back to the very first episode with the five queens from Data is that there might be five of them uh, as opposed to just the two, uh, which was an interesting little piece of speculation. But uh, the idea that there's more somewhere uh, it was interesting. So uh, we shall see. And the, the part of it that I am wondering about is, is that planet free cloud? Because isn't that where Maddox's lab was? And so wouldn't that have been where they were constructed? And it's that the Romulans didn't know that. And now they know that the lab was on free cloud, but didn't they already destroy the lab? So I, I'm just trying to figure out like what this actually means, like the logistics of it, right? Because Maddox says they already came the Romulans already came. They destroyed his lab. I thought that lab was on free cloud. Well, now, if you remember from the previous episode, you find out that they, they have actually a home world. So it could very well be that Maddox took this particular part of his project and he filled up an entire world with, or at least started to fill up a world with these new kinds of things that he was making, which are different from what, yes, would be his typical lab where he made all his other things. That's what I picked up, picked out from it. All right. It could be. It could also, be. Interesting. Uh, if you're saying that there now needs to be number assignment to the synths, all, all I have to say is all of this has happened before and all of it will happen again. 
And this one is number six. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, you know your BSG, but the, the number six character in BSG is actually a reference to an earlier show called The Prisoner. So, so it's like a reference within a reference within a reference. <laughs> now the puzzle box is starting to make sense. Just, uh, Which, by the way, that's an interesting concept because the title of the episode, as I was thinking about it, you know, and I haven't come to an answer on this, but I was thinking the impossible box, is that actually the Romulan fidget spinner slash Rubik's Cube? Is it the board cube? Uh, or is it Soji, right? Which of these is the impossible box? And maybe it's all three. Uh, you know, maybe it's left ambiguous on purpose. But uh, I was trying to figure out exactly what that title referred to. And I just thought it was just vague enough to be all three, which I kind of liked. So I, I enjoy that kind of ambiguity uh, in the episode. But uh, I, I realize I kind of took us off, off track there. But nope. uh, I'd love to hear if you have an opinion on that. It was... The the titles have also particularly been impressive. These these remind me of the Deep Space Nine titles because they almost all had multiple meanings to them as you watch the episodes and you realized it. So yeah, the Impossible Box to me it seems like it's uh, because if you remember the scene that Picard and Hugh have, Picard is almost essentially saying nobody could have ever done this that they would have taken the Borg and kind of turned them into the good guys. But you're doing it. You're doing something that might be impossible. So I thought that because they're doing something impossible on this box, because the Borg cube is, the cube is a box. I, to me, that was a reference. But yeah, you're right. It plays on multiple levels, which is really cool. Anyway, so uh, before we get out of the scene, do you have anything, any other references on? So what I thought was interesting is the Pinocchio theme continuing. and the doll that she sees on the on the operating table mm-hmm. is that that was pretty uh, i don't know where we go from there but man it must be it must be pretty terrifying watching yourself as a wooden doll and then realizing that that's basically your origin because narik comes up to her after ending the ritual and he says you know you're not real you never were and with tears in his eyes he unlocks his cube and the cube starts releasing this red gas and the door closes. And you see that Narissa has been watching this all along. A bunch of things happen at this point, but uh, you cut from one scene to another and it's almost like a montage with the way it goes at its speed. But Narek leaves the gas bomb. He's walking away. He sees that Soji, mm-hmm. as she starts taking the gas in, it's not affecting her the way he thought it would. She starts breaking the ground open with that data synth strength we know that she has, that she's finally realizing. So this would be her activation, right? Yes, yes. And from here, they also cut to uh, Picard and Hugh, who are in Soji's room, and they they realize that they need to get there sooner because uh, Picard asks Hugh, where is she? And they say that she's not on the queue, but then he realizes that she might be in a restricted area. And then they hurry down because they finally see her coming uh, back on that little hollow map that Hugh has, and she comes back because she has essentially broken the ground in that Jal Mark room, and she's fallen to the level below. And as Picard and Hugh keep running, she falls right in front of Picard and Hugh. What What did you think of this scene so far? It was I thought the activation scene was pretty cool. Okay, so I agree with you. The activation scene was very cool. Um, I really struggled with it, to be honest, because oh, so I, I'm just I am putting my I'm trying to think about the Narek character, right? So, okay, I'm going to take Soji to this meditation room 
We're going to lock ourselves in this room. Now he knows that she, if she activates, she's basically a murder machine with, you know, preposterous speed and abilities, right? He, he knows this. So, okay, we're going to go in the room. I'm going to see if I can get her to activate. Now he may not have been successful, right? Or, you know, he may not have, he goes in the room trying to get the information, right? We, we, this is the outside and inside motivation of the character, right? Is to get the information on, on where she came from. They get the information. So then his strategy is I'm going to tell her that she's not real. I'm going to give her a hug. Then I'm going to wind up my fidget spinner Rubik's cube box with a wooden doll inside. I'm going to put it on the table. I'm going to keep talking to her. It's going to slowly open. The wooden doll is going to come out with red radiation gas. And then I'm going to walk out the door. She's not going to follow me. The door is going to close. And the radiation gas will spread through the room and hopefully kill her. Dude, this is a bad plan. <laughs> it just seemed like a preposterous, like 1960s Batman sort of villain idea. And I was thinking, is, is he stupid? I mean, because it seems like there has to be 150 more efficient ways to get rid of her at this point when he, if he wants to get rid of her. So what I landed on, and I could easily be wrong at this point, but we shall see when the next episode comes out, is that he really didn't want to kill her. Uh, this was all an elaborate plan he put in place so that he would have plausible deniability with Nerissa, his sister. Well, if you think about the mechanics, that's where I landed on, is that he does not want to kill her because he actually is in love with her. And he does not want her to die. So he can tell Narisa that he activated the bomb, but the bomb didn't go off in time for Soji to break free. And that's why, if you remember, he walks up to the glass case, but he doesn't open or he doesn't do anything as he watches her break free and leave the level. So to me, that was him saying, yeah, I'm glad you're escaping. And he doesn't really act on it until she has escaped. It is after she escapes that he calls on the guards and starts running around trying to figure out where she is. Yeah, so, because if you if you believe that he really wanted to kill her, then the Nara character is a stupid, stupid person and should be killed, right? He's clearly an idiot. Um, and I don't want to believe that about the character. I think they, they didn't set him up to be that way. So the only way I was able to reconcile his actions in this scene is that it was all just an elaborate thing. To He's trying to pull the wool over on Narissa and all the other Romulans who are watching on the uh, screens or whatever, You know the other Zatvash people, because uh, I just couldn't believe the character was this dumb to come up with this elaborate and stupid plot. So uh, we'll see if Narissa falls for it. I don't think she will. And I'm going to lay a prediction down right here, right now, that one of those Romulanister kids is going to kill the other one. I haven't decided which one it's going to be yet. I suspect it's going to be Narek killing Narissa, but one of them is going to kill the other before the set, before the show goes on too much longer. Well, I don't know about the killing part, but I do think that Narek will be the character who, by the way, he reveals his real name in this episode to her. He says it's Kaon, if I remember correctly. It's yeah, something like that. It's a, it's a yeah. two it's a two syllable name. The subtitle showed it as two different two two different uh, yeah. words put together. So it to me it sounded like Kaon, which if you think about it is Narek going backwards in the Romulan language, it's N-A-R-E-K. And if you were to write it down, it would be K-E-R-A-N, but he pronounces it a little differently. Anyway, so yeah, the, to, to go back to that point, I don't know about them killing each other, but I do think, much like Jirathi, who will eventually turn out to be the horrible bad person, I think Narek will come out to the good side. And that will be the trade-off as the things go on, is now you have a rogue Jatwash person trying to help our crew while one of our crew 
is helping the Jatvash or the Tal Shiar or Starfleet or all of these people. Anyway, so from here, uh, Picard catches up with Soji. He pulls out the necklace from his uh, pocket and says, this was your sister's. She asked me for uh, help, but I couldn't help her. Please come with me. I can help you. And then Shoji trusts him because I think when she activates, much like Daj, she knows inside her that if you remember going back to the pilot, that they know that they need to find Picard and be with him. So I think something along those lines happens. And then Hugh helps them escape. They go into this room and Hugh activates this transporter called the spatial transporter. I, I just wanted uh, Picard to say, if you want to live, come with me. I'm sorry. Oh. But, <laughs> I'm oh. sorry. I'm sorry. You can tweet oh. at me if, you, if you're angry. <laughs> now you're pissing off both Terminator and Star Trek fans. My friend. <laughs> oh. So in this room, a few particular things happen. As So they enter into this body chamber, for the lack of a better term. And uh, they're, they're running away from all the Romulan guards. And as they head into the room, uh, Hugh says, you remember this place, don't you? Even though you've never been here. And Picard says, yeah. And then Hugh says, me too, which is really interesting to me. So is this just part of their collective memory that they all are instinctively supposed to know where this escape chamber is for the queen? So no matter which one of them is helping the queen, they can get the queen out in time. Well, I, th- I think that would be the, the cell where the queen lives. So mm-hmm. that, that's, I, I just, that's how I took it. When they said, this is the queen cell. That's yeah, what they yeah. said when they went in. So I took that to mean that this was where the queen hangs out, right? This is this is her place, and so of course that's where the escape uh, the escape module would be, right? Because if you're going to build an escape uh, uh, method for yourself, you don't put it in a place of the house where you're, you're not normally going to be, right? You want the escape uh, uh, tunnel coming from your bedroom, right? From your master bedroom, that's where you would put it, right? You wouldn't put it in the auxiliary bathroom on the first floor of the house, right? You'd, you'd put it right where you'd expect to be in case stuff was going bad. And so that's where I would imagine that the uh, uh, queen would have it. So, um, by the way, one little reference I want to point out here, which I know that you know, was that there's a reference to the Sakarians, uh, whose technology that was. And, and uh, some people said, oh, well, the Sakarians were all assimilated. And I just want to be very clear that the episode does not say that. It says that the Borg got the technology from assimilating Sakarians. That doesn't mean that it assimilated all of them. It didn't say the Sicarians or the Sicarian homeworld. Mm. I mean, for all we know, it could have been one or two Sicarians on a shuttle somewhere that they assimilated, and one of them happened to know the technology, and that was that, right? It doesn't mean the whole, nah, and it could be the whole planet was assimilated, but I just want to keep in my head that, you know, Gath might still be out there somewhere, you know, cluck clucking at visitors to his planet. It sort of makes me happy. Oh. You and your happy dreams, my friend. Well, so John is right. This is from a Voyager episode in which you see how these transporters work. They're essentially, they essentially do work like a regular transporter, but they are almost like a little wall, much like the nine and three quarters platform in Harry Potter, where if you just run in, it'll take you to another place. It's kind of like that, except it's a transparent wall that uh, you can walk into and it'll take you to a place that you've put in coordinates for. So anyway, as they get ready for this thing to be activated. They realize that they're running out of time. And that's when the hero of the show, the Koath Milatwe guy lands on the bar cube, the artifact and doing his samurai, Jack, Bruce Lee, all the cool samurai references act. He comes up on the show and he says, I am 
no, I'm ignoring the directive you gave me to stay on the ship. And he starts just slaying down Romulan guards. The, one of the several things I was watching for on my second rewatch was I wanted to see how he responded back in that earlier scene when Picard says, under no circumstances are you to leave this ship. And so I just want to point out, Elnor doesn't say anything. He just walks off the frame, right? And I thought, beautiful. So he, he didn't say he would stay on the ship. He didn't say anything. He's just like, yeah, you know, to heck with you, old man. I'll, I'll do what I'm supposed to do and stick to my, uh, stick to my oath. So good, good on you, Elnor, for uh, not, not telling a fib. I, I appreciated that. And you and Elnor fight off the Romulan guards as uh, th- they keep getting nearer. Picard finds out that it's time to get on to the spatial transporter. So he asks you to put in the coordinates to Nepenthe. That's N-A-P-E-N-T-H-E. We find out from the preview of next week's episode, from those of you who have not seen that preview, that Nepenthe is actually where Riker and Troy have retired to. So as they before they leave, Picard says, make sure you get the coordinates for Nepenthe. That's where we're going to. And Picard and Soji get into that spatial transporter. And they escape and the episode ends. Thoughts, John? Yeah, I want to say this is another point where the episode didn't make a lot of sense for me. Because just looking at what was happening, um, there's nothing that happens in the show why they all couldn't have gone through together to Nepenthe. Um, There was was plenty of time for them to all walk through and to go. Uh, Hugh, if he felt like he had been discovered or was compromised and he wanted to leave, he could have left. Uh, Elnor could have left. Uh, there was plenty of time for that. Um, and they didn't make any reference to the fact that, oh, only two people could go or, you know, it, it, we can't fit four. They didn't say anything like that. Uh, and I kept watching for that and I didn't get it. So I just didn't understand what was actually happening. Like it seemed unnecessary to me that Elnor had to stay behind. Um, maybe I missed something. So well, presumably t- it's, it's that they're going to fill up with so many Romulan guards that they cannot turn around and get to there in time for them to escape as these people walk away is what I took from it. And on the other side, on the outside of it, I think it would have definitely taken a little too long had everybody, when you say everyone left together, you only mean Hugh and Elnor, right? Hugh, Elnor, and and uh, Picard, and uh, Soji, they all oh, yeah, could have, yeah. they, there was plenty of time for the four of them to go through. Uh, if you just look at the timing of the scene, right? Because... They, they closed the door. They already walked through. It, it was unnecessary just looking at how it's cut. Uh, in, unless I'm missing something, it seemed to me that they all could have gone through if they had wanted to. Yeah. Uh, it was unnecessary for Elnor to stay, and it was unnecessary for him to fight. Plus, I, I don't think we've seen from Elnor how he deals with uh, ranged weapons. I mean, I assume these Romulans are going to show up with phasers, and they're down a long hallway. So he's got a sword. I, I don't know what his technique is for dealing with that. So I, maybe they're keeping that in, uh, in suspense for us. He's going to deflect I, those bullets, man, Deadpool style. He's going to do it the Koat Millet way. That's the Koat Millet way. You just know it. I'm on. So, may, maybe. I don't know. It's just it's something we haven't seen yet. So Because uh, <laughs> even, even on, uh, what was it, Planet Vashti, right? We even see that at one point. Uh, one of the Rymans is like, a sword ain't going to do nothing against a blaster, right? And then, of course, he gets transported off the planet, right, at that exact moment. So I, I'm curious to see what actually happens when the guards are coming down the hall shooting phasers at him, what he does. Uh, I would imagine he's transported back to the La Serena. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe that's immediately how the next episode starts. I don't know. Yeah. But I still think he could have gone with Picard <laughs> through, the, I mean, through the thing. I, I don't know. I, I just didn't get it. So maybe it's a weak point in the episode. Maybe I'm wrong. So and if um, 
I don't know. I, I watched it very carefully on a on my second watch through. So I, I could be wrong about this, but it's something that I'm still trying to figure out exactly why this was necessary. And I, I haven't quite come up with a, an explanation that, that satisfies my own head. Maybe I, maybe I just need to let it go. I don't know. <laughs> All right, John. Well, we've come to the end of another delightful episode, I think, because I enjoy John's company so much. At least for me, it was really, really delightful getting to discuss uh, the impossible box with John. John, any other final thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I can't wait to see where it's going. Uh, you know, I, I am always willing to call out things that don't make sense to me on the episode, but that shouldn't be taken as an indication that I didn't like the episode. I thought it was a, an amazing episode and I really enjoyed the humanity at the center of it. I really enjoyed uh, the, the performances. I really enjoyed how everything came together in some of the scenes, especially early on. We have a lot of the character and character character scenes. In the second half of the episode, it gets a little action heavy, so there's less opportunity for performance. Uh, when you're doing action, you know, let's run and let's get the thing and go jump through the hoop and, you know, all that. Um, I just thought it was just spectacular, and I'm really excited for the show, and I'm really excited to see what happens next. I can't wait. And I was especially thrilled to have the chance to talk to you about it, to talk with you about it, Shashank, because I always know you have a, a very interesting point of view and it's always a delight to talk to you, my man. Well, that is very nice of you to say, sir, right back at you. Where can people find you if they want to tell you how much they enjoyed your appearance on the show or if they have uh, so many problems with it that they just cannot wait to tell you about it? Oh, if people want to tell me I'm wrong, I'm, I'm always happy to, to, to engage with people. <laughs> See what I did there. Uh, and you can find me at Trek Profiles on the Twitter, at Trek Profiles on Facebook, and www.trekprofiles.com. And also wherever you get your podcasts as Trek Profiles. Great. And people can find me on at gutter underscore hero. That's G-U-T-T-E-R underscore H-E-R-O. You can find the show on at Polytrex. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. You can also... Find us on all kinds of audio platforms for if you want to listen to other episodes of the show. We are, I believe this is our 33rd episode. So it's nice. delightful that I had John on another Battlestar Galactica reference. 33, 33 baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so for those of you who do not know, John is also a huge Battlestar Galactica fan, much like me. So it was such a pleasure to have you, John. I cannot wait to have you back, sir. And until next episode, dear listeners, Live long and prosper, and onward to start side. Boom diggity, we're done. 